Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 55 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Before going any further, I'd like to give a big shout out to GRG Sports and Fintry Harbour Asset Management for the continued support. We really appreciate it guys. It is now time to bring on this week's guest and I'm delighted to be joined by Ireland's most successful sprinter and former Olympian, David Gillick. David's gold medal win in 2005 at the European Indoor 400m Championships was the country's first in 76 years. Gillick is a double indoor European champion and still holds the 400 meter indoor and outdoor record in Ireland. Post retirement, David struggled, something he has spoken about with the hope that his story will help others who find themselves in similar situations. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. So, hi David, welcome to the Interview Podcast. How are you keeping? I'm good, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the chat. And that, look, we're uh, hopefully coming out the uh, coming out the uh, good side of the pandemic now. Um, the next couple of months are looking positive as we're recording this podcast because you know <laughs> things could change very quickly. Um, how has the past fourteen months been for you? Yeah, it's it's like it was a year. It's fourteen months. It's probably be fifteen months by the time maybe things will ease a bit further. And um, yeah, like like everybody else, it's. Uh, I found it challenging. Um, there's been positives in there, but I think the initial, the initial kind of lockdown number one, I I struggled. I struggled with that kind of change and the, the speed of change as well. And you know, I've got at that at that time, I had two kids. Now we have three kids. Little uh, little Louis arrived two months ago, but you know, crash is closed. We were all at home. My wife was working at home, and we weren't set up for working from home. And um, I found that very stressful and also throw in the fact that like a lot of work that I was doing um, a lot of the corporate work just literally stopped because I couldn't go into sites. I couldn't go into offices. Um, even from a sporting perspective, the work that I do there, things were been cancelled. So yes, the worry, the anxiety came to the fore and you're kind of thinking, well, how long is this going to last? Um, and then there's look, look, the financial implication, you're kind of worried about paying the bills and all that. So I will say the initial kind of, I'd say the initial three weeks uh, was quite stressful. Um, but then I suppose I, I kind of, I kind of like in hindsight, I look back at that time and, and I got through it and why did I get through it and how did I get through it? And I think I look back at my whole career uh, as an athlete and even that transition out of elite sport and that probably made me more resilient than, um, than I realised. And when the change came around 14 months ago, I was probably a little bit more um, capable of adapting to change because of my career um, and almost having that confidence that, okay, look, you know, everything will be okay. Um, it'll work its way, work its way out. You'll get into a routine. And that's kind of what happened. I got myself into a bit of a routine. And I say like me, it was more we, you know, my wife, the kids. And if the truth be told, I probably, I kind of enjoyed it then. You know, I, I kind of realized that, Life slowed down. Um, I enjoyed the fact that I wasn't been pulled and dragged. I enjoyed the fact that 
I probably wasn't been put under pressure to do things and that even that feeling that I had to do it. Um, and I was able to spend more time with the kids. We were able to be more of a family and probably even just be a little bit more centered. You know what I mean? Like when I'm with them, I'm with them physically and mentally, you know? Um, and I think I enjoyed it. So like, you know, when you say that there's more, like the restrictions are easing a lot more, maybe positives to come, there's probably a level of anxiety for a lot of people as to like, okay, well, what's coming next, you know? Because I think a lot of people maybe have enjoyed the slower pace to life. And look, I'm not saying that, you know, everything was all rosy. I did miss family. I did miss friends. I did miss going out and catching up with people and having the freedom to do what you wanted to do. Um, and I think the restrictions were put in place so people wouldn't integrate and wouldn't travel for obvious reasons. So I think, you know, where I'm at now is um, trying to hang on to those little things that I enjoyed and not like let them go because they were of value. And not only to me, but to the people that matter most to me. So it's trying to hang on to that and bring it forward. So it's, look, it's been a year of ups and downs. And I think it's very positive to maybe reflect and kind of go, well, what did I enjoy? And what can I take with me for 2021, 2022? And on that point, what do you think you could take with you? I suppose something you touched on would be gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think the realisation of, well, like what worked in terms of my own routine? Like, where was I wasting a lot of time? Um you know, I think when I was at it, like working from home and having a, a young family, I had to be a little bit more efficient. You know, I had to communicate more with my wife and kind of say, okay, well, what are you doing? Okay, well, I'll get this done. And then, you know, I look after them and we'll swap over. And I think it enabled me to really kind of focus on a bit of a structure for the week. You know, okay, well, what days are going to be my big days? That look, you know, I'm boxing them off. I'm going to get through all this work. And then that frees up maybe time later on in the week, because what I was struggling with originally was, you know, the boundaries were just blurred. Like, when was I on? When was I off? There was no clear lines. Well, David's working right now or David's David's dad right now. It was like, you're playing with the kids, but you're kind of going, oh God, I need to go back to that email. The laptop's talking to me there. I need to go back to it. And it's pulling you. Um, and I think, you know, over the last, probably even with change with, with, with a, uh, a third baby coming into the world, it made me kind of go back and go, right, I really now need to get focused on that structure. And and the same time is, like I, I think I've probably got more efficient with my work. You know, I know now what priorities are big rocks that I have to do in a day and get them done. And then it's kind of like, well, that's not a priority. That, that can come another day. Um, and really just kind of get that momentum going. So I feel like I'm progressing. I feel like I'm ticking the boxes. And that's definitely something... I would like to to bring forward um and also that like ability i think to say no um is always a challenge and the fact that i haven't had to do a whole lot of that for obvious reasons over the last year i do feel now okay well what do i enjoy doing like what is it that i actually find rewarding that i find i get a kick out of and what is the stuff that you know what i don't really need that i thought it did but in hindsight, I don't need that. So maybe maybe it's time to let that go. Maybe it's time to say no. Um, and I think maybe a bit of reflection, which a lot of people have done maybe for the last year. And I'd always say to people, like, reflect, 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 debrief, you know, check in with yourself on a regular basis. And I think that's definitely something I've, I've done more of uh, over the last couple of weeks and months and try and hang on to that, you know. Uh, just something be important as well, because I find it very hard, and I, I, I guarantee a lot of people do, um, say you know during COVID and even post-COVID is you know to build exercise how important it is to have exercise in your 
in your week and, and how do you like how do you, well, I suppose your whole life was around exercise and you know being an athlete but how, do you find that difficult to adjust you know during COVID to get yeah. exercise in? I, I, I did and like see this is kind of the funny thing as well and, and like a lot of people will think exercise is something that is, is hugely of importance to me because of my career and look i it was, it was my job. It was absolutely everything. My whole world revolved around exercise and trying to get faster. Um, but when I retired, I found it incredibly hard to exercise. I found there was like no motivation. What, why was I doing this? Why did I have to get up and go to the gym? I didn't need to do that now. There was no Olympic games. There was no 44 seconds or personal best. So why do I need to do it? So I actually found the motivation was, it was so hard to find. And it was only probably, you know, when I, I realized that I needed a bit of professional help in that space in terms of my own mental health. And when I went to a counselor, I can remember like coming out after maybe the third or fourth session and realizing like athletics is it's in me. It's part of me. It's it's something I've been doing since I was like a little kid, like six. And that's when I kind of realized, you know, the huge benefit of exercise. And I got into a good routine. I started cycling quite a lot. I love to cycle. Um, and then COVID came and I couldn't cycle. I couldn't go out. We couldn't do anything as a group. And um, I've, and then like the stress of the change and kind of the lockdown and all this sort of stuff and the worry and anxiety, I, again, the motivation just went out the window. And it was only probably, you know, maybe I'd say a month um, into the whole kind of lockdown did I, did I kind of realize I, I, need, to, I need to do something. I need to like get out. I need to do something. And that's when I, I got a, a turbo. I got one of these indoor cycling turbos. Oh, yeah. And I was like, right, boom, this is it. And um, I got onto like the internet and I, I found out about Zwift, um, which was the online platform. And I did, I just got stuck into that. I signed up to Cycle in Ireland's uh, league. So every Saturday morning they had a league, 10 a.m. So I lived for Saturday mornings. And I had had it in the garage. And it was funny because like the garage is obviously front of the house and it was one of these old up and over uh, garage doors. So like the neighbors would be doing their 2K loops, you know, and there's me going hell for leather in the garage. Um, and that became it, that became everything. And, and even like virtually you could do meetups. So there was various people, like even athletes, people who like, uh, like the Phil Healy's of this world, uh, Scullion, all these people started getting on bikes. So we're all having these like virtual meetups where you're cycling with these people looking at the laptop. So that's what, how I actually built it in because I found it hard to get myself and motivate myself to go out and do something. You know, even go out into the garden and do a bit of body weight kind of S&C and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's probably one of these things that most people think, oh, you're highly motivated. Like, yes, I do have that motivation. And when I give myself a goal, I work towards it. But like, I think a lot of people, probably found themselves in the situation where the motivation or even that accountability because you're not meeting up with someone or you're not going to a class um that it, be it began to kind of flatline and I was I was very similar so you know I I do I do have a huge uh, and I do put a lot of value on exercise in terms of my own mental health and you know it's one of my triggers if I don't exercise I feel a bit tense I feel a bit like on edge um and look, it's probably a drug me, you know, I, I need to, and I need to factor that into my, my week and my day. And it's whether it's an hour or whether it's 20 minutes, I think it's of, of huge importance. And we'll, we'll, we'll delve into the self-talk and all that later on um, 
in, in the podcast, but we'll bring it back to the early days. Um, you're from Ballantyre, and obviously the GA Club is Ballantyre St. John's, and we just spoke about uh, off-air that you're after you know, relocating back there now, so it's it's going to be quite quite interesting that you know down the line. Hopefully, your your kids will be you know doing the same route that you did many moons ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we, Oscar, he's five now, so um, we have him down in the in the nursery down in St John's, and I'm one of the coaches, you know. So uh, it's good. I, I actually enjoy it, and it's just getting them active, and it's great to see how. Like the club and the area um, overall has really kind of improved in terms of facilities. And we're very lucky. We've got great green spaces. We have the park, we have the mountains, we've got really good clubs in the area from soccer, GA, athletics, um, all that. And um, yeah, I, I, like I, I think it's one of those things with kids. You just try and throw them into as many things as, as you can and see which one they, they enjoy and what they like. And I think it, it, like, it's funny because people would be like, oh, you're the Olympian, you won a couple of medals, like the pressure's on Oscar now, you know, and it's, it's I, I'm always kind of aware of that. And even to be honest with you, I was kind of reluctant um, to get involved as a coach because I kind of felt, you know, I don't want to be, you know, that close to him when he's doing sport. I want him to find his own way and I, don't, I want him to become his own person. And if he wants to do it, he'll do it. If he doesn't, that's okay. And I, I, I'm always kind of that coach, uh, dad sort of, player relationship is quite unique and like right now it's all good he loves it his cousins are in there with him and he just has a ball so you know I'll, I'll, I'll try and help them but yeah like the early days very lucky in the area like we had great clubs and that's how it all kind of started and also the schools as well I had great teachers you know teachers that would have you know like not only from a PE perspective but they you know they would have got us involved in various sports and I think that kind of opened up um the opportunities and obviously from a family of four, I'm the youngest, you kind of follow uh, the footsteps of, of your siblings. And one of that was, or one of those was into uh, athletics and that's kind of where that took off really. And um, the Dundrum Athletics Club, is that is that still there or has it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's uh, like Dundrum South Dublin and DSD, it would be one of the biggest clubs in the country. You know, they have a huge underage setup and, um, you know, for me, that was like everything kind of fed into that. You know, they'd have good ties with a lot of the local schools. So from a primary school all the way up to like even secondary schools. Um, and obviously you had some really kind of great coaches there, people that gave up an awful lot of their time. And like, it's always funny when I think back because I think it originally kind of, you know, friends, school friends, we go down, we kick a football for half an hour before the athletics started. And that was probably more the reason that some of them were going down. But look, I suppose the truth be told, I was fast. I had a bit of speed and I was the fastest in my class. And that's obviously very important in primary school. Um, and like, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how it's, uh, how things are going to unfold. But I enjoyed it. You know, that was it. I, I enjoyed running and um, I enjoyed playing sport. And, you know, I, I think my, my parents gave us every opportunity to get involved in, the, in sports. Like they were never coaches or anything like that. Um, but you know they were taxis. They washed the kit. They did all that sort of stuff, and they were involved from that perspective. I believe that both your parents were from the country, were they? Or do I have that information wrong? Yeah, well, my mum was uh, my mum was a true blue. Uh, my dad was, now was a true blue. Um, my dad now would be. He was actually, would you believe, like he went to school in Dublin and stuff like that, but. My grandmother was from Wicklow and my granddad was from Cavan and they would have spent an awful lot of time down in Wicklow. 
um, every school holidays, summer holidays, they were always down in Wicklow, you know. Um, so we we kind of we would have spent a lot of time down ourselves growing up down in Wicklow. Uh, my kind of that side of the family have a farm and everything down there, so we would have spent a lot of time there. And yeah, like I, th- I think it's nice having that having that kind of country element um, to your life as well. You know, I think there's you get I suppose the best of both. Like my mum was a dub, but my dad would have that you know that country with you know that kind of crack yeah. about himself and. Um, probably an element where you wouldn't take life too seriously either not saying that all country people are like that but i enjoy that sort of banter um with people outside of dublin and like you know i think been involved in the ga where a lot of people in volunteer because it's a young club that would have been from the country um and i think my dad settled in nicely there and um that sort of environment you know it was nice no, that's interesting because I love, um, you know, asking guests about, you know, where their parents would have been from and how that, you know, that background would have affected them. You know, would they have been from Dublin originally um, or New York or Boston or were they from, you know, from the country? And, you know, you do, there's something different when one of the parents is from the, the country. They have, like you said there, they have that, that cuteness, that bit of wit, that bit of crack. And like you said, not take life too, too seriously at times. And I also think as well, like I'm not saying that people from Dublin don't respect this, but I think when you live in a very populated area, there's a there's a there's a pace to it, you know, there's a fast pace to life, whereas the country can kind of slow you down a little bit, you know, and it's and also community is very important in country and everybody knows everyone and all the rest of it, you know. And I think sometimes, particularly in Dublin now, that, that can be lost a little bit. So it's nice to have that um kind of element to life as well and and, and know the importance of it. What else did you um, play in your youth? Um, you know, I know I know you played GA, but did you play soccer and, and tennis or, or rugby or whatever? Yeah. No, played a, played a lot of um, lot of GA, a lot of soccer, and uh, obviously a lot of athletics. Like my my first sport was probably athletics. That was the youngest uh, sport I kind of got involved in. Then I played an awful lot of soccer as well. And I think you know through my teenage years. You, you kind of realise which one you're good at or which one you're kind of making inroads. And I, I probably wasn't as good as uh, in soccer as I would have liked <laughs> to be. So I think when I was about maybe 15, 16, I packed that in. And then I continued with uh, athletics. And even on athletics, I wasn't, I wasn't really making big inroads into it. You know, I think as a young teenager, I was doing well. But, you know, I was probably a bit of a, a late developer. And soon I kind of found myself lagging a little bit behind. But I enjoyed it. And that was the thing that kept me in it. I played a lot of GAA up till I was actually 19 before I actually focused on one sport, which is probably, they would say, well, nowadays they probably say it's a good thing. But back then it was probably, you know, everything was about specialising maybe a little bit earlier. You know, it's very hard to do two sports at a high level. But I um, I enjoyed the, the, the Gaelic as well. I was doing well at it, uh, club and for my school. But it wasn't until I, I was 19 um, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become an athlete. I'm gonna give it everything and see what happens. And how, like, how did you find that? You know, the transition from well, I suppose you would have been doing it, you know, as well. But we say that transition from a team sport to focusing solely on a, on an, an individual sport, if you know what I mean. Because you know, probably nowadays there's bigger teams involved in with athletes, but back then it was very much on your own. Yeah, it was very much on your own. And- I think actually, like what happened was, I I I was trying to make the world junior championships over four hundred meters, and I actually 
I, I missed the individual qualifier time by about 0.4 of a second. But they selected me as part of the 4x400 relay. And we went to Kingston, Jamaica in 2002. And that just blew my mind. It was unbelievable. Um, like, I, I can still vividly remember the Saturday night in the stadium. I was in the stands, 40,000 Jamaican people shouting, bolt, bolt, bolt. And this young, like, tall, like, stringy fella came out and absolutely annihilated everyone over 200 metres. And he was only 16. He was two years younger than me as a junior. I was 18. And that was Usain Bolt. And I remember just going, this is amazing. And that was that was the game changer. That was it. I, I remember coming back from that experience going, I want more of this. I want to be that guy on the track. You know, I want to be that individual. And that was it. And I can remember coming home um, 2002 and I played my last game. Um, at, it was like December 2002 for St. John's. The, it was, we were a senior. We were inter one trying to get into senior. And I said I'd play at the, the end of the season. And we did that. And the team qualified went up. Um, and that was it. I, I hung up my boots and um, I became an athlete. And I kind of felt that, right, this is a sport that I really want to focus on. And it was hard because, like, like my brothers, my dad, they're all involved in the club. And, like, I'm not saying I was any great shakes, but, you know, I, I would have been a starting, in the starting 15. And, you know, in a GA club, people are like, oh, what's he doing that for? You know what I mean? He's doing well here. and You know, he, he's making inroads. He's young, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but deep down, I just felt like athletics was kind of always had that pull. I had I had to grow for it. And I kind of felt that if I, if I wanted to to be someone, it was probably on the athletics track as opposed to the GAA pitch. And that was it. There was talks there uh, a couple of years ago that you might, uh, might be called in with Jim, Jim, <laughs> Jim McGuinness. Uh, sorry, not Jim McGuinness, Jim Gavin squad. Was there, was there any truth in that? No, I think yeah, yeah, I think Brogan or something threw that out. But yeah. that year, I actually did go back and play for St. John's, and um, yeah, look, I know people are kind of like, oh, he's got a bit of pace, and look, speed is very important on GA pitch. But uh, I think he saw my uh, my kick, and it was like, all right, <laughs> we'll forget about him for a bit, you know. Um, but no, I did. I went back and I played, and I enjoyed it. And I think you know, going back to the point about that kind of team environment, like I did enjoy being. An individual athlete. I did enjoy kind of, you know, the fact that I was responsible for everything. Um, and I didn't have to rely on anybody else. It was it was very much about me taking ownership and trying to work really hard and create a team and like who do I need, what works, um, and just kind of get that all around me. And you know, it didn't happen overnight. It took plenty of years until I realized that I needed help in different areas. And even as you mature, you kind of think, right, you know, maybe I need someone on a diet. Maybe I need someone in, in the gym. Maybe I need someone up here for the head and all of these things. And, you know, like when I, when I relocated over to the UK, like that was an eye opener in terms of what those individuals had. And I think even when you look to say the summer and you, you watch Tokyo all going well, you know, you see an individual running, jumping, throwing, walking, but what you don't see is a team of people behind that individual um, and as much as it is an individual sport there is a team there and it's it's vital it's crucial because nowadays there's so many different areas there's so many different like facets to a performance and to an elite athlete that you basically have to have all those moves covered um, and I, I did enjoy kind of I suppose as I always kind of say paddling my own canoe at times but been in control 
and actually pulling that team together and, and challenging people as well. You know, at the end of the day, I wanted to run fast and I wanted the people to help me to run fast. So it's, uh, it's important, very important. Back then, would you have neglected, say, um, training your mind, you know, on the psychology, psychology side of things? Or, you know, nowadays, obviously, it's, it's part and parcel of sport. Um, but back then, it was probably only in the early days. Or very, very early days. You know, if if you were saying to someone you're going to you're going to go to talk to someone, they'd be looking at you going, What's wrong with you? You know, you know, what's wrong with you? And like that was you're going back like 10, 15 years, you know, it's it was all about the physical, it was all about fitter, faster, stronger. Um, it wasn't about okay, well, how are you dealing with the nerves? You know, like where's your anxiety levels? You know, are you doubting yourself? How are you dealing with that? Like that didn't exist. Um and slowly but surely, it's now a huge part uh, of a, of performance across, like you know, across businesses, across the sport. Um, and yeah, like I probably did neglect it, but I also didn't know how to deal with it. You know, like I, I remember going to races and literally talking myself out of performances, literally looking at a fella and going, "Oh God, he's got shiny spice. He must be good. He's sponsored. Oh my God, he's good." And like lo and behold, he's brutal. He's out the back door. But yeah, you've I focus on him. And I'm not focusing on myself. I'm not focusing on even the process of a race. I'm going into a year and I'm focusing on a time. I run. I want to run fast. Nearly eight months, nine months down the line, and I'm forgetting about what. What, what are you doing today? You know, how are you going to do that? How are you going to get there? You know, so even that kind of putting that strategy in place, that vision, that mission. You know, knowing the difference about what is a vision, a vision, and what is a mission. You know, the steps that you need. What are you going to do today? What's that process? And, and like, when I matured and when I really kind of began to talk to people about this, like, that was a huge game changer for me because I began to focus on, like, and I know it's cliche and it's all these buzzwords, but the controllables. What, what can David do today? You know, what is going to enable me to perform to my max today? And then the environment, working in an environment where I've been challenged. And I know my target for today is I've got to hit this number. And I do that. That's the day boxed off next day. So I'm not even thinking about what I'm going to do in the Europeans or in the Olympics then a year in advance. I'm literally focusing on what I'm doing today. And that really kind of enabled me to, to grow and enabled me to, to gain a lot of confidence from my training and who I surrounded myself with, that ecosystem. You know, when you're surrounded by like-minded people who are always pushing the boundary and you're up there with them, you know, it's like a game of tennis. It could be world number one. I'm returning his serve. I feel great about myself, and that's the confidence. That's the stuff that you kind of bring with you um, over the course of the of a year. And uh, I think working with people who are skilled in the psychology of a of performance um, really helps. You know, with even practical things like right, you're going to get nervous. Nerves are good. You know, it's managing them. It's kind of dealing with them and and using them in a very positive manner. Um, as we always say, like those butterflies. You know, just get them. To all go together, just get them to fly, fly in unison, and that's what it's about. You probably got asked this before, now, and look, you can excuse my obliviousness to the whole thing. But do you know, say if you run forty-four seconds or whatever the case may be, why can't you do that the next day? It does like there's obviously I'm I'm completely wrong here now, like with just Not explain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And like, it's, it's, you know, when you start looking into sport and you kind of start questioning, why can't I do that every time? Well, you look at other sports, you look at, say, golf, McElroy doing well, 
last week. Where is he this week? You know, mm-hmm. his his shot on the first hole was was really good, but then he completely makes a hames of his of uh, you know teeing off on, on hole number two. It doesn't make sense. But there's so many different variables. Um, there's obviously the environment you're in, weather, the track, um, the competition you're up against, also how you're feeling. Like, you know, are you tired? Are you a little bit stressed? Are you a little bit worried? All of these are factors that can play into a performance. You know, it's the exact same with soccer. Why can't Messi go out and uh, and play world-class every single game? You know, because again, there's opponents, there's different people who are managing themselves to take him on. So again, it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's like that flow state, you know what I mean? When you hit it, you hit it and you, you're on it. Um, why can't you do it every time? And that's that's the secret to it all. But again, you got to pull it all the way back and go, well, what are you looking for? You know, you can't expect to go out and be peaking it every single time because it's a physical demand on your body. And if you are able to go out and like completely like smash it, smash it, smash it, there's going to be a time where you're going to fatigue and you're going to drop. So what you want to do is you want to go the other direction. You want to maintain that as an upward curve. So when you're peaking, for an Olympic Games or a European final, that's when you want to run your best. And that's where the science comes into it. So everything is not looking at your first race of season. Everything's looking at your last or your, your peak, and you want to build that back. So you want to see that progression almost in each run. Um, it's always nice when you go out first race of season, you run a PB. But like then it's like, okay, now you got to maintain that to get to here. So there's a lot of variables in it um, and there's a lot of different phases and the science has really come into it now as well about how you're managing yourself mentally, physically and what you're building towards and then tracking that all the way up. So it's uh, it's an interesting one, you know, but I think, you know, on the practical level is you break down the race, you break it down 400 metres into like the first 50, the first 100, 200 metres, 250, 300, et cetera, et cetera. And you have your triggers. And you're not really focused on the end result of a race. You're just trying to execute the race. As, as one man said to me, it's like, plan to dive and dive to plan. That's what it's about. Forget about what's going to come when you cross that finish line. Just focus on what you're going to do when you get out of those blocks and just hit the triggers, hit the triggers, hit the triggers, and away you go. I remember watching it at the time in, in 05. Um, I've seen it in the news after when you when you won the European Championship um, that time. And... I've obviously seen it since, and and more recently, I, I was looking at it. It was just explain the the you know the tactics and the you know what goes on in you know in races like that, especially over su- such short distance. You know, if it's marathon or whatever, it's it's, it's different. But you know, it's so short dif- short distance because you came over the tracks and you're behind the two or three lads for a while, and next thing, gone. It was was that planned or was that just the way? No, like it, that race now in, in, in 2005, was, it was actually my first kind of big individual championships. And like I, like I went in completely under radar. Nobody, nobody expected me to win a gold medal. Um, never mind even that maybe, maybe make a final. But I can I remember that race vividly. And I probably was a bit naive in, from a tactical um, point of view because I'd never been there before. And you're up against these people that I would have known that are faster, they're older and more mature. But the way that race unfolded, and that's indoors. So indoors is, is again, it's it's a completely different to outdoors because you're not in your lane. You break out of your lanes after 170 meters. It's a 200 meter loop you have to do too, as opposed to outdoors where it's one lap, it's 400 meters, and you're in your lane the whole way. So from a tactical perspective, it's hugely different. 
And even the way you run it, you've got to run the first 200 faster than what you would do outdoors because it's all about positioning. You have to be in a good position because the bends are tight. So all this stuff kind of comes into it. So like, you know, the way we would have approached that would be like, right, well, he's going to go out quick. So you need to be up his arse, you know, through the bell because if you're not up as rusty, well, then you're not going to have a good chance to get around him. And all of this stuff kind of played out uh, in my favour in that race because there was a Russian lad in it who just went off like a lunatic and then the two lads were jostling so they're focusing on themselves they left a gap on the inside and little old me like came through and I, I got a gold medal and it was brilliant and it like I think at the time it was Ireland's first gold medal in a in a sprint event in like I don't know something crazy like 70 years you know and like like even that whole experience of coming home and having a bit of a fanfare and getting recognised and all that stuff, I actually, I, I found that really uncomfortable because now people were like, well, what, what's next? Are you going to go on and like, win an Olympic medal and all this? And I'm thinking, holy shit, like, Jesus, nobody knew me last week and now they're all asking me these questions. <laughs> you know, and, it, and again, it's, you go back to your previous question about like the mental side of it. I didn't want to leave the house and I'm not making this up. There's, there's a shop down the end of the road and I remember one day I was like, oh God, I'd love it. I'd love a breakfast roll. I'm not making this up. I'd love a breakfast roll because I had a week off so I could eat whatever I want and I was like, yes, brilliant. And I want to go down and get a breakfast roll and I was like, oh, God, if I go down there now, I'm going to bump into someone and they're going to be asking me about this and what are you doing? And here I am, cloak and dagger trying to get a breakfast roll. But like, it was a huge learning curve and I think, you know, from a tactical point of view, like, yes, every race you run, you're mapping that out. You're looking at who your competitors are. You're looking at what they might do. You know, so you're aware that if he goes off like a rocket, that's okay. Don't go with him. He'll come back to you. Stay in your lane. Focus. Put the blinkers on. And like, you know, even in outdoors where, you know, was always the bigger goal for me, Olympic Games, you know, make a world final outdoors. I broke down, like I said before, like when I got into the blocks, I'd imagine there was like dynamite in my stomach. And this might sound a bit crazy, but this is what will go through the head. You know, you, you do your whole routine on your marks, in the blocks, the dynamite is lit. Why is the dynamite lit? Because you've got a brick wall 20 metres out from the blocks. Why? Because I need to get out fast. I need to get out fast and almost get up through the gears, get up to, a, to my cruising speed, which at 100 metres, I'm floating down that back straight. I'm dropping my shoulders, so I'm trying to stay nice and, t- nice and relaxed, and I'm floating down the back straight. 200 metres, in any track in the world, there's a white line, right? 200 metre start line. It's always going to be there. So I know at that point, I'm up in the gears and going from fifth gear into sixth gear. Now you're revving the engine. And when I, when I come around the top bend, the water jump is always on your left-hand side. Majority of tracks in the world, the water jump is on the left-hand side at 150 meters to go. That's when I get my hips high. So hips high, keep your hips high. You're keeping your stride length. If you get your hips low, that's where your stride length shortens. So you're not, you're not covering the ground. So the hips are high. Try and stay nice and tall. And then home straight, drop the hammer. Just fucking go for it. Um, and that was it. That was kind of the plan. So like by doing that, I'm not really worried about next door or the lane inside me. I've got to focus on this. And like the last 100 meters, that's when you get competitive. That's when it's like, right, you know where everyone is and you're just trying to stay nice and tall and just literally go hammer and tongs to that line. A few things I wanted to delve into there. Um, train. I think around that time, could be wrong now, but uh, before, on, in the lead up to, to 05, you, you would have been training outdoor. You had no opportunity to train indoor. Would that be right? Or... Yeah, no indoors. Yeah, yeah. 
that must be a big shock to to land over there and it's fairy tale stuff, really. Like you know, because yeah, like yeah, like we had no, there was no indoor training facility in Ireland. Like we had Nina um, down down in Tip, where like literally one fella, all credit to him, Sean Norton, built uh, built an indoor track in a cow shed, and that was our national stadium. And the bends were very awkward. It, it wasn't an easy camber. It was like they added one lane, added another lane. It was a bit bumpy, but. It did the job, I suppose. And outside of that, it was all outdoor training. Um, I and mean, that's not a bad thing because indoor tracks can be hard on the body as well. You know what I mean? You're running at a, at a camber. It's, you know, the tracks can be tend to be a little bit harder. So, you know, from that perspective, maybe the outdoors was okay. But I did I did race indoors. I went over to the UK champs and won that that, uh, that year. Um, and, you know, it's... It is, it is funny when you end up in a, like not even just a track, but even a big stadium, a big stadium with a track and like you're looking up going, Jesus, this is, this is serious. This is like, you know, I'm not used to this. Um, and it's all of that kind of emotions and stuff like that, that, that come with that. And I always remember there was a, um, I can't remember, there was a basketball movie years and years ago and they're from like a small, true story, from like a small high school, whatever. And they went on and, they ended up becoming the best team in America. But the guy brought them into this massive state. It was like, the, like where the Lakers played or something. And all the lads were like, oh, my God. Like, you could see the worry in their faces. And he got the measuring tape out. And he just measured up to the uh, from, from the court up to the ring and was like, it's the same. It's the same. And I think, you know, just even that kind of an analogy was like, look, I've ran indoors before. It's just a track. It's just the same. Yeah, I may not be as useful as other people for, from a tactical perspective, but um, I didn't really let that kind of phase, you know, I didn't let that phase me. And even now, it's we have great facilities. We've got like two tracks, two world-class tracks, um, which is great. But at, back then, it was it was your side, but I didn't mind that because it was almost like, you know what, toughens you up. You know, it, it kind of, you know, here's these lads with their fancy tracks. Here's Paddy Irishman now. We've got nothing. You know, he's just in a pair of wellies and he's going for it. But that kind of drove me a little bit. I'll be honest. It was like, no, excuse the language, but F them, you know. Also, yeah, the, the, the warrior mentality, like, wasn't it? And the underdog yeah. mentality. Um, where are the tracks now? Is there one UL? That's no, the- there's there's, uh, there's one in Athlone and then there's one up in uh, the Institute of Sport in Abbottstown. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, phenomenal facilities. Like, they, they really have invested in them and they're brilliant and they're great for you know, the up and coming athletes and, uh, you know, even from a weather perspective, you can get in, you can do quality work and, and you can also host really good meets. So you can bring like international athletes over and have good level of competition here uh, on other soil. And that's, that's really kind of powerful to push people on domestically. Something you touched on previously um, and you, you touched on here as well. Um, you know, you're very open, you're honest about, you know, you don't sugarcoat uh, the lead up to these races and, and stuff like that the nerves um how do you deal with them as you progressed in your career yeah like funny enough like when you're talking about 2005 that was the worst experience of my life and i'll be honest i came home with a gold medal thinking well, i don't know if i want to do that again like and, and i'm not making that up because i was riddled with nerves i always remember um, on the on the Wednesday, so I, my rate my first race was on the Saturday, and we flew out on the Wednesday. Okay, and I can remember my mum, my mum giving me uh, a bit of lunch before she dropped me to the airport, and I was sitting in the sitting room on the Wednesday, couldn't eat it. 
I was literally like, I was like already nervous. I can remember being on the plane and sitting beside another athlete who was chat like yappy away. And here's me almost like Jesus, like in the zone. Um, and again, the days leading up to it, the only time I, I felt comfortable and relaxed was when I was warming up. Strange. You know, when I was warming up and I was in my routine, you know, and I knew exactly what I was doing. It was the waiting around. It was that like waiting for the race and overthinking it and who's going to be in my race and what lane am I going to be in? And that, that was like a completely new experience for me. And even I remember before the final, my coach at the time, Jim Kidd, uh, he knew I was anxious and I was worried. And he was like, come on, we'll go out for something to eat, you know, get me out of the hotel. And we went to a little uh, Spanish restaurant and I was eating. Basically, it was like it was chicken, breaded chicken. I remember viv vividly and it was a busy restaurant and I had to go outside and I was on the path. I was, I'm not making this up. I was on the path with my uh, hands on my knees. I, I was like bent over. I just I couldn't eat. And when I got a bite into me, I was necking it with water. Um, and even after the heat, I was so I was so wrecked. I was puking and everything after my first round because I like I, I had nothing in my body. Um, and I remember coming home on the Monday and thinking, Jesus, like I didn't enjoy that. I didn't enjoy it. Um, and that was a huge kind of learning for me to go, right, you know, I need to do something about this. And that was my first kind of um, venture into like sports psychology and who can help me manage this. And, and as I matured, then I realized that, you know, I wanted the nurse. Nerves were a good thing. Give me the nurse because it shows that I care. And even that like kind of switch of going, yes, like I have the nerves. I'm ready. I'm up for this. You know, it's, it's, it's driving me. And then it's managing them. Okay. What did I do? I, I used to write down, you know, all the doubts that we have naturally you get doubts. What, what this goes wrong, what that goes wrong. I'd write them and I'd go into the garden and I'd burn them. I'd literally burn them in a piece of paper, get rid of them, get them out of my head. And then I'd write down all the positives. I'd have a training diary and then journaling that. And even looking at the training diary and going, Jesus, look at the amount of training sessions I've done. God, I forgot about that session. God, that like, I've nailed that in world class times. I got all my um, all my clips of my races, uh, literally downloaded them from YouTube. I don't even know if you're allowed to do that, but I did. And <laughs> I put them together on a little video clip, and I put a song that meant something to me. And it's 50 seconds long, and I put it on my phone. And wherever I went, if I had a bit of nerves, I'd watch that. And that was it. That was me. I did all that stuff, and that was a huge kind of like boost. Um, and then you got into like the visualization, the imagery, you know, focusing on a bit of breathing in the call room before you get onto the track. Just a few deep breaths. Imagine there's a little feather on the end of my nose, breathing in, breathing out, and not, not to dislodge that little imaginary feather. And that, these are all just like centering techniques, you know. Um, and that was the stuff that I, I began to kind of implement, you know, and just even little mantras, things that I'd say to myself, um before races before big training sessions and i think the the key to that is like it's resilience and resilience right now is such a like dare i say a buzzword because of the last year but like how many people are reminding themselves of all the setbacks the challenges that they've had and how they've overcome them because that's resilience in action so i took huge confidence out of my races as i matured i used to look back at them i used to like you know debrief what can i work on what can i take from them that was challenging you know, I overcame that though. I've come out the other side. How did I do that? I asked for help. I got advice. Um, and that sort of stuff really, I think, stands to, to people, be it um, in any walk of life. Um, 
just in the lead up we say to all fighters obviously you you put protocols in place to, to deal with it as uh, you know as you went on but how did you find sleep you know getting sleep before that race and even before big races how did you calm your body down and and close the eyes <laughs> or did you yeah. no i did the funny thing was all i wanted to do was sleep all i wanted to do was sleep i'd like i was one of these people i remember reading the thing about damien duff and damien duff was like before any any football match he was in the bed he just he couldn't get out of bed um and i was the same i like you'd find me in my hotel room in bed and i'd be whether i'm dozing whether i'm sleeping um I, I generally didn't, uh, in the early days, didn't really have an issue with sleeping. Like, that actually came pretty easy. Um, there was times, as I got a little bit older, when I was maybe in between rounds and stuff like that, where the adrenaline could be really pumping, um, I found it hard to switch off. Uh, and that's when I probably would use different techniques, like um, like a body scan, you know what I mean? Trying to use kind of tensing muscles and relaxing muscles to try and kind of relax the body and um, a bit of wind down music. Um, even I went on, I did, uh, I started working with a, um, a hypnotherapist to try and kind of, you know, bring in these techniques, you know, even things where we would have done recordings. So wherever I am in the world, I would throw that on and he's bring me through a set cycle to try and wind, wind the body down and wind the head down. Um, there was times when I had to take sleeping tablets. And then I'm not making this up. There was a time when I took a sleeping tablet and the fucking thing didn't work. And I was wide awake. And I'm not making this up. A lot of people don't know this, actually. So you're getting an exclusive here. <laughs> but I went to the World Indoor Champs in 2010, right? And I was going for the win. I, get, I was in great shape. And it's one of these races that, you know what, I still think about. I still think about. Um, and even going back to your question, why, like, why can't why didn't I run fast every race? I I got out of my heat into the semi-final, qualified for the final. After my semi-final, I literally it was late at night in uh, in Doha. I couldn't sleep. I took a sleeping tablet, didn't work. I could not sleep. And even at night, the anxiety, I kind of thinking, oh, how can I, I can't sleep? I can't sleep, and the worry. And then the following day, I ran the race and um tactically got it wrong I didn't get out quick enough I wasn't where I needed to be at the bell even though I was strong and I was I was catching all these athletes there was no space I tried to make space I collided with a fella we, we both bumped um I stumbled and I came like I don't know fifth or something like that and then I subsequently got disqualified um it was just a complete another mess and I always kind of think like that wasn't me usually you know I'd be spot on with tactics and stuff like that and I was tired. I was fatigued. I was distracted. I can remember being in the blocks and I could hear voices. I could hear voices on the infield. You know, I heard someone say, go on Gillick, you know, things like that, that I'd never hear because you're in that zone. And I put it down to fatigue. And, you know, again, it was one of these kind of learning curves of going, right, I need to manage this. I need to work on this. So, you know, that's when really got into the, like, you know, trying to like the best practices to wind down, even post race, post like rounds, doing ice baths and things like that to try and just get the heart rate down and, and mentally wind um, wind the head down a bit as well. So it was always one of these things that had to be managed. You know, it's uh, you're never the finished article, I suppose, but it's um, it's looking at people as well, looking at, okay, well, who can help me in this space uh, and what tools are available um, to try and, and do it. But yeah, I remember that race and I was thinking, Jesus, you know, if only I could go back. 
Something I found uh, interesting because I used to actually get that bus as well uh, years ago. The 46A used to get that from the from UCD to yeah. DIT, was it? Do you want to just delve into that? Yeah, well, as in like like going in and out of college or just kind of like the, the life that it the, was? Well, just the, the life of, you know, in and out of college, uh, train oh. beforehand and then yeah. on the 46A and you have the, you have your your breakfast with you in the morning and all that. It's, it's funny because you bring me memories back. I, I can remember going down. So we used to, I was in DIT, but I'd go down and I'd use the gym in UCD because one of my coaches, uh, Lucy Moore, used to use that gym. So it was 7 a.m. I'd be in the gym and then I'd hop on. They had a 46A into town, into DIT industry for lectures. And like we used to do that twice a week. We'd have two gym sessions twice a week. Um, and I can remember like hopping on the bus and having the hard boiled eggs. And then people are kind of looking up, what's that smell? And there's me tucking into my hard boiled eggs, the protein, you know. Um, but it, it's kind of funny looking back at that. And even like I'm amazed that. You know, I'd get up at seven, I'd go to the gym and then he'd crack on, you'd have like lectures all day. And then I might, like I'd be on, say, the Lewis back home or something like that. And I might have a run or a training session or something else to do. And you just did it. It was just part of what you did. And like, I know people talk about like, oh, sacrifices and stuff like that. I don't really think there were sacrifices. I think it was more just a choice. This is what I want to do. And um, I can remember particularly one year that I like, I was aiming for the European under 23s and I can remember being in the gym in UCD and Lucy actually saying to me, like, I think you can do this. I think you can really get that, that quali- qualifying time. And like, it's just, it, it's, it's vivid because then you leave and you crack on with the rest of your day. But it's, um, yeah, like it was busy. Like it was busy, but I, I was fortunate enough. I still had the odd night out in college and all that. And I don't think it was like, I don't think I had to like completely shut off like all that element of my life. Like I can't go out or I can't go out with the lads and have a laugh and all the rest of it. I did that. And I think there was a couple of years that I didn't train on a Friday. So Friday was the day to hang that, have the hangover. Now flipping, I could not do it like now or even <laughs> in my late twenties. But you know, when you're, when you're 19, 20, 21, you can get up the next day and get your training done. And like, you know, I do look back and I kind of go, God, maybe if I was a bit serious a little bit early, what would have happened? But then I look at, like, there's a lot of athletes that did do that and maybe got to their mid-20s and that was that. Whereas, like, at least I had a career. So, you know, I'd never kind of beat myself up about it, but it was busy. I can remember, like, days where you're coming home and you're wrecked. I can remember doing a few stints then out in DCU and, like, getting over that side of the city and then coming home and it's, like, eight, nine o'clock and, then you're up the next day for lectures and stuff. And, you know, you're just, you're tired, you're fatigued. And um, I think nowadays, like, I think athletes are probably a little bit better at managing that. And we're not in, that was the biggest change when I then relocated over to Loughborough over over in the UK, because everything was in like, and I remember thinking that like the first week I was like, oh my God, like everything was literally in a mile radius. Like everything, I'm talking gym, track, ice baths like where I was living everything and that was just a game change it was like oh my god I don't have to like spend time commuting I don't have to get in the car I don't have to get on the bus or whatever it was I could literally walk and I'm home and I, you know what I can actually I always remember like in the evening time the first week I, I can remember it was like seven o'clock I'm thinking oh my god like I, I can just chill out and watch tv now <laughs> you know whereas before I used to always train in the evening time 
because I was in college and the majority of people that I was training with were in college or working. So that was the, the time to do it. Whereas when I went to England, it was more, this is like a professional environment. We do it in the morning time and, uh, and that's the way it goes. So, but like, I think it toughens you up having to do it that way. I think it does give you a bit of an edge. You know, and I always remember a very um, talented British athlete who won medals, a fellow called Chris Rawlinson. Um, he was older than me now. He, he was retired when I went off to England, but he was like, I remember just in passing, he was like, oh, that's why you'll succeed. That's why you'll succeed because you've done all of that and you've made a decision to put yourself here. And I remember thinking, you know, what does he mean by that? But now I can kind of realise that, you know, you make these decisions, these choices, and it pays off. You know, and I think we can all kind of do an element of that. Sometimes you just got to invest in yourself and, you know, you reap what you sow. And I always remember that comment and it's something that kind of stuck with me that, you know, what, the good days will come. The good days will come. Like if you put in the, the work, you know, it will it will show pay dividend. Um, one thing I... So this is this is going to be kind of a completely stupid question now because obviously I don't have an analytic background. <laughs> so, but how I think people would have, would have interest in it. How do you train to become quicker? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> that's question. question. There's a lot of GA, <laughs> a lot of GA teams now who will be like, right, how is he going to do this one? Um, this it's a number of things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's the holistic approach to it. I think, you know, it's as much focusing on like speed and foot placement and, and then you're also looking at like, okay, driving force. So where does the force come from? Do you need to put on a bit more power, a bit more strength? Where is your positions? You know, so again, like when you're, you're, you're running, where is your foot strike? Is it underneath the body? Is it out the front? Is it out the back? Because they're, they're all extremely important. So, you know, again, from coming from a 400 meter perspective, speed wasn't, speed was obviously very important, but also strength and maintaining that speed. So if you, you were looking at maybe a 100 meter athlete or a 200 meter athlete, yeah, speed and acceleration is, is incredibly important. Um, but as you move up to 400, it's getting that, that balance. You know, you need to be fast, but you need to be strong. You need to be able to hold that over 400 meters. So, again, we would have done a lot of stuff about, um, like, speed drills, like, uh, you know, posture, um, hip height, uh, foot placement drills to try and get that position and spot on. So when you are running that, you're able to hold form a lot better, okay? And if you can hold form, and I mentioned that earlier on about, like, even hip height. So, again, like, how do you do it now? What would I do with, say, a GA team? I would focus on coordination I'd focus on mobility and I'd focus on um, like little hurdle wicket drills. So those little wicket drills. So it's not all about trying to get lads to go out and just like go as fast as possible. If anything, I'd be holding lads back. I'd be like, all you're doing is 20 meters or 30 meters. That's all you need to do. Okay. Because you're focusing on acceleration and what you need to do is make sure that the body is able to, to withhold that, uh, that power. Okay, so again, you're looking at, say, an adult male or an adult female, they're generating a lot of power um, and a lot of force. But if that's not going in the right areas, chances are the hamstrings are going to go. And it's really interesting right now because the GA haven't had that uh, window of opportunity coming into a season. So, like, even I was watching a game there recently and the lads were popping hamstrings, you know, an inter-county match, lads are popping hamstrings. And 
the key to it, like this is just me now, okay, it's my opinion, but I think the micro dose and bringing, you know, just adding in a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more and watching the overall load because what you're looking for when it comes to speed development is quality of work. It's not flogging lads. It's not going out and running shuttles on the GA pitch and going out to one cone and back or running 50, 60 meters, you know, because what you'll do is you'll overload lads and they'll, they'll, they'll break. They'll, they'll just literally, you know, hamstrings, they'll have issues. So the key thing would be for me would be managing that explosivity and, you know, doing things like wicket drills. So you're really focusing on uh, foot placement and keeping lads, I suppose, their positions, getting that position correct and then bringing in a bit more pace to it. So, you know, even, you know, acceleration drills over 20 metres, 30 metres, but I'll be holding lads back to about like 80, 85% and then gradually building that up, you know, so making sure that uh, I suppose the chassis is strong enough to hold the power. So you're not going to put a, you're not going to put a Ferrari engine into a, into a mini, you know, chance that it'll break down, you know, and for speed, it's repetitions as well. And this is the boring part. You know, you've got to do the same thing over and over and over. And, you know, I, I, I've done a bit of work with, uh, with teams and um, the lads would be, blue they'd be bored of my voice when I'm just telling them right wicked drills stuff like that because they're like oh we've done this before but it's all about consistency so it's like when the lad goes out and hurls or, or, or kicks a ball you know it's consistency it's a simple pass it's a simple score it's those things that you got to get really good at and sprinting is the very same so again you're adding that into most training sessions getting lads familiar with the positions to hold the little wickets the mobility bringing in S&C to make sure that there's no imbalances often a huge thing lads could be strong in one area um, and then they're trying to sprint and then the other the, the right leg or the left leg is weak and then pop and um, something happens so it, it is that holistic approach and it's um, it can be very individual for different people uh, but I do think you know mobility flexibility coordination uh, is very important when it comes to sprinting and then you're just bringing bringing people through those wickets and making sure that they can hold those positions and then you're adding in a bit of pace over time. So, you know, you're building it up, you're microdosing over a duration. So the body's adapting to it, it's getting stronger, it's getting more familiar, and then the speed will come. And would a lot of that, um, would say the brain of all that movement, would it be around your hips, groin, hips area? Is that where that power and, and that speed? Yeah, yeah. Like hip height is very important. So like, you know, that would go back to like even an S&C kind of point of view of how do you get people strong that it can hold those positions, even things like uh, your core um, Pilates. Like, you know, one of the key things for me, I remember back in 2009 when um, I ran 44 seconds for the first time, I remember someone coming up to me and saying, like, everything's moving forward. You know, and I was like, what do you mean? Like, straight lines, everything's moving forward. Arms are moving, your, your knee and your shin bone, when they're coming up, they're going forward. So sometimes I see a lot of people that they waver, arms go left to right. And what you're doing there is it's wasted energy. So again, if you want to run fast in a straight line, you need everything to go in a straight line. Think, think of like an F1 car. When that's at max velocity, it's going straight. It's going forward. If it starts weaving, it's slowing down. You know. So again, you're trying to get the body to be strong enough that it's, it's linear. It's moving forward. And that can be hard in, say, a GAA environment or any kind of pitch-based environment because you've got to be agile. You're going to have to be moved. So that's where your acceleration is extremely important. So it's almost like, yes, speed is important, but your, your acceleration from zero to five meters, because that's when the breaking ball is, that's when you got to be sharp, that's where you got to move. So that's even more important. So again, it's, it's, it's coming down to like, 
um, holding those positions though, that the hip height is very important. Um, and for me, like core, core work was, was really, really good because when you fatigue, that's when things can kind of drop and that's when you're losing speed and almost you're putting the body under duress it could cause injury. So, um, yeah, it's that combination. And I, I definitely think like, like we started doing Pilates and all, and my coach at the time, this lady used to come in and do Pilates and we were all like, what the hell is all this all about? And I'm telling you, worked wonders, worked wonders because, you know, it forced me to slow down in terms of core work. So, you know, typical bloke, get the abs, go into the gym and you hammer it out, 10 this, 10 that and smash through it. Whereas she was like, breathe slow and you're like after two reps you're in absolute agony you know because you're engaged in your core you're doing it the proper proper way and honestly I, I really believe that gave me a lot of strength in the last say 100 meters of a 400 when you're tired that I was able to hold the positions hold the stride and then um, you know in, maintain that speed you know uh, just something's uh, I've been reading well, not really reading about it but I re- you know you, you see uh, clips about it in the last couple of years I've, I've gotten information about it um, but would you be very much um, mouth or nose breathing? Oh, I'd be all all mouth. Jesus, yeah, all mouth. Um, and again, it's kind of like, like you're you're going to breathe. Like when you're exercising and things like that, it's very much the amount of oxygen you can get in, and that's through your mouth. Um, and I never really like it, it's it's a question I get asked quite a lot sometimes when people are maybe getting into exercise or even running. You know, they struggle with their breathing. And I think fitness plays a role in that as well. But sometimes you can get very out of breath and it's almost like, you know, a bit, bit panicky, you know? So again, I think it's for a lot of people starting small and building. Um, but the easiest way to get that oxygen required for exercise is through the mouth. Um, and it's just kind of getting that pace to it, you know? And I think that can catch people uh, off guard at times, you know? Um, and like, to be honest with you, like, you know, when I was competing and racing, it wasn't really something um, I'd be thinking about. But like when you cross the finish line, that's when you're like, you know, you, you need, you literally need an oxygen, an oxygen bloody mask to get you kind of recovered, you know. But uh, oh, like man, the lactic is is a killer. Like you know, your head's buzzing and you you get the tingly feeling above your eyes and your nose and um. And that's lactic acid. That's just like your body engulfed in lactic acid. So it's not really the breathing you'd be focused on. It's like, oh God, here comes the lactic. Because <laughs> no, you can't get, you have to be scraped off the track. Uh, look, we, we, we don't, you know, before we delve on to post um, retirement, to, you know, we have to just look into yeah, your time at the Olympics. Um, I was actually listening to the podcast last day and they were on about the shenanigans that goes on at the Olympics. Um, from your experience, is there, is there any any uh, any slight truth in, in that that stuff? Or what's your no, first of all, I should ask, yeah. I should ask, what was your experience of the Olympics without going into that? Well, will we do the clean version or the sensor version? It depends. <laughs> um, it's oh, look, because it's, this, uh, this podcast is uh, explicit, and as well, sorry. Explicit, <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. You know, the way you kind of, and I get that question uh, quite a lot. Like, you're, you see, you're very focused on the job in hand, and that's performing at the Olympic Games. Like, my Olympic experience, um, it wasn't great because I didn't perform that well. And that dictated everything. So even, like, village life post uh, post my event, I was I was a grumpy fucker because I hadn't run well. Um, but the other side of it is, yeah, you do have your nights out, and you got to imagine, like, there's, 
you've got nearly like probably, I don't know, was it six, seven thousand athletes are all kind of in one area who have been, you know, probably penned up for the last four years, you know, testosterone through the roof. You know, they're looking at one event. Their whole lives have geared towards this one event and then it's over. What do you do? You celebrate or you commiserate, you, you go out, you've got friends, you've got family, you've got your teammates that you've spent a lifetime with in preparation. Um, and you're in an environment around like young, like-minded people. So yeah, there's parties, you want to go out, there's there's various things going on. Um, and every night in the Olympic Village, it got louder, it got louder, it got louder, because every day that finished, more people were, were finished themselves. Um, and then, yeah, look, you've got like, you've got male, females, um, you know, young, whatever. You like, it's, it's, it's like anything, you know, you go to college, you know, people get together and it kind of like the Olympic village isn't a whole lot different in a way. Um, and it's normal. And yeah, look, it's a bit of crack. There's just an awful lot of people like letting off some steam at the end of a long, hard, tough four year cycle. Um, but obviously people, you know, the media love talking about the village and what goes on. And then you have a few rogue athletes that go out and start, um, like, I don't know, going into petrol stations and tearing them asunder, uh, as happened over in, in Rio. But like, you know, it's just like, it's normal, you know? And it's, uh, I don't think like people talk about, you know, the, I think they promote various like things like safe sex and things like that. And there was one where, uh, every day they used to fill a bowl, uh, like a massive bowl now full of, uh, condoms. And, you know, like at the end of like by lunchtime, they're all gone, you know, <laughs> like, um, but these are just the funny things, you know, but it's no, like it, it's normal. It's just like at the end of an exam period where, you, you know, you want to go out, you want to just go oh, back to normality here. And, you know, like for my, like I had friends and family that came over and I hadn't seen them in a while. Um, you know, so obviously you want to catch up with them and there's people I would have competed with, people competed against them. You want to go out and have a couple of beers, like that's that's the way it is. But it's good, look, it is. It's good crack, like. What was the? We say the whole. I remember actually watching the ceremony and all that. It was amazing. But from being there, what was the whole? You know, apart from the race. Here's the funny thing. Touching that. Here's the funny thing. I wasn't at the open ceremony because we had a holding camp in Japan, and athletics is like the second week of the Olympics. I watched that like everybody else on TV. Um, and even from another side of it, like, you know, I was at the closing ceremony and it was brilliant and it was great to be there and like the pressure's off. But a lot of people actually don't go, a lot of athletes don't go to the opening ceremony solely because it takes an awful lot of time. Again, you're talking thousands of athletes. How do you get them into the stadium? You know, where are they located in relation to the stadium? So suddenly, you know, there's buses involved. You're standing around for an awful long time before they bring you into the stadium because there's there's, a, there's loads of stuff going on. Then it's getting home. So it's actually a, like a really, really long day. And I wasn't at it, but I know from a lot of people who were, was like, you know, yeah, I, like it took a lot out of me. If I was competing a day, two days around that, they wouldn't go, you know? Yeah. So again, it's kind of managing that. Yeah, like it's, it's um, like, it's something I'd love to say I was at, but... And if I was in Beijing at the time, I probably would have done it because I wasn't competing until a further week away. But for people who are maybe competing in the first week, um, yeah, they uh, a lot of people don't go, surprisingly enough. That's why sometimes you see there's a lot of like 
I, I remember people used to say, why is there a lot of Elflas there and L ones and all on it? You're like, well, they're all like the administrative side of it, you know, because they have to fill, fill the team, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, would, you know, during that event, like, would, would all the Irish um, athletes have, have met up at any stage? You know, like, would you have crossed paths with the boxers or, or other, other members of the Irish team? No. No. Um, back then, no, like there was no Institute of Sport, there was no kind of Abbottstown. Um, so everyone was just doing their own thing. So, yeah, to, to put it kind of bluntly, I would have been on uh, a flight or over in, in like in the village uh, and in our apartment block with, with strangers. I wouldn't have known a whole lot of people. Um, nowadays, it's a lot different. Nowadays, like you know, through the Institute of Sport, there's a lot of uh. Uh, people overlap with people getting to know people. There's a lot more team environment, which is which is fantastic. Um, and I think that's like a credit to you know what they're trying to do in Ireland and, and create that environment. But back then, like it was early days, I would have known obviously all the athletes and maybe a few other people, but not on a very personal level. Um, it just probably goes. This is you know um, an obvious enough question, but you probably would have been ro- rooming with other Irish guys, were you? Or were you with? different yeah like so um no we were all kind of like basically the way it was with all apartments so basically they just built a massive new apartment block and then that would have housed um all the athletes so we would have been in an apartment with maybe three bedrooms so it would have been just a kind of irish athletes but sometimes yeah you might have an irish athlete from a different sport but they would have definitely been irish like i used to always room with uh paul hessian so he was my kind of uh my roommate in all the championships. So I would have got on very well with Paul. And, um, you know, uh, it was just, comf- it was comforting being in a room with uh, with someone that you know, because when you're on the circuit, when you're in, just in and around Europe, racing, wherever, you are literally lamped in with whoever, whoever, whoever it is. And like, I've been in with people who didn't speak any English. I had uh, one Australian bloke who was obviously traveling around Europe and had like bags and all the rest of it. And he couldn't find his camera one day and he's blaming me for robbing his camera. And I'm like, I don't have your camera, mate. Uh, and I'm in, I'm in a room with him. I had another fella from um, the Bahamas and uh, like he his English, it was funny, like, because he, he, he spoke, um, I think they call it Creole, or Cro- I can't really pronounce the exact word. Um, but like, I couldn't understand him. And he couldn't, he, I don't know, he couldn't understand me, but he was playing Xbox all through the night. And I'm trying to get sleep for a race the next oh day. And this last time, um, I had another fella and a funny one, an Austrian bloke who just walked around naked the whole time. <laughs> I'm so there, geez, will you get yourself <laughs> up? Like you know, but you, this is it, you know. I, 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 and on a funny one, I went through a phase where, uh, like, I had a superstition where I needed to be sleeping in the bed that was closest to the door. <laughs> I don't know, crazy stuff. Um, and I arrived into a hotel room and the fella, he was a Japanese bloke and he'd taken that bed. And I'm sitting here going, right, I need that bed. I need that bed. I need that bed. I'm going to run, run well. The long and short of it was, I couldn't have that bed. And then I ran a personal best the next day. So that kicked that superstition out the window. You know? So like it's, it's funny, but you know, when you're traveling, you always kind of get to the hotel and you, you kind of scan the list and go, well, who's around there? Or what room is available? Or can you put me in with him? Or can you put me in, in with that person? Um, and it's just trying to make yourself feel a bit comfortable, you know? Oh, God, I never realized you were putting randomers going around, but oh, going yeah. around Europe. Oh, the character building, I say, to say at least. 
I'm telling you, earplugs are required. Jesus, seeing Phil walk around naked, not something you kind of want. Jesus, <laughs> isn't it? Um, look, uh, Dave, we just delve into um, your retirement and post-retirement. Like, you know, like, yeah. unfortunately, you kind of came, you know, out, out of your control. You had to, to hang up the spikes. What was that time like? It was hard. Um, I had... Uh, I had a great year in 09, I had a great year in 2010, and um, I decided, you know what, I want to improve, I want to get faster. Um, two years out from London, London Olympics, I'm going to relocate, went to America, was in a very, very talented group, some of the fastest people on the planet. I got badly injured. Uh, it didn't work out for me in the States, so I went back to England. So this is now 2012, and I had a recurrence of the injury on Paddy's Day 2012. And I didn't get back in time. Uh, so I missed the London Olympics, which, to be honest, was heartbreaking. Uh, so close to home, you know, coming sixth in, in 09. Uh, I really felt I could do something there. And then, you know, I said, right, I'm not going to end my career on this. I'll go again. Um, changed things around. I was then in Australia. Got myself back into really good shape. I was preparing for a race, probably around this time of the year, actually, about May time, for a race in Japan. And I did one of my best sessions ever. One of my best sessions and the last rep, just as I approached the line, I felt a twinge in my Achilles. Couldn't get out of bed the next day. Um, I tore my Achilles. And by this point now, I was 30. Um, I hadn't raced in, 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 I hadn't raced in nearly three seasons. I'd missed, yeah, missed nearly three seasons. And I wasn't making any money. I'd lost my, I'd lost sponsors. I'd lost uh, my funding. So you're beginning to kind of think, right, like now, now it's really costing me here. Um, and then the thoughts came in about, okay, well, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? So I decided I, I was going to retire. I, I felt, you know, I'm 30. I had a decent career. It's time to move on. Um, I was a little bit worried about, like, what, what, where my body was at because I had such a run of kind of injuries. And I retired, and I kind of thought, like, Grant, I'll just crack on. This, this would be all right. And I came back to Dublin. And funnily enough, I did Celebrity MasterChef. And uh, I loved that. It was brilliant. And it filled up a chunk of the, se- of the summer. Whereas usually I'd be racing and the fact now that I was injured, I was like, oh, well, I was doing something. So I filled a void. And then September came. And that's when I'd usually go back training. And in this September, I wasn't. I was still in Dublin. And I can remember waking up on a Saturday morning thinking, what do normal people do on a Saturday? Because for my whole life, I trained on a Saturday. You know, I had, I had that routine and suddenly I didn't. I didn't have a purpose. I didn't have a goal. I didn't have to be anywhere. Um, and I really struggled with that. I really struggled with, like, what was I doing? Where was I going? And who am I? Am I just an athlete? Am I just a runner? Is that all that people see me as? You know, and funnily enough, at the time, it was like, oh, there's the chef. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, are you a runner or are you the chef? You know, and, and it was just a bit like, what am I doing now? Like, what, what am I doing with my life? Because I suppose, like, as an athlete, I always had a goal. I always had um, that motivation, that desire. You know, I knew what I was doing today. I knew what I was doing next week, this year. And then suddenly it was all gone. And the routine was thrown up in the air. And the reality was I completely struggled. I panicked. I took a job straight away because I thought, right, I need something. I need money. And I thought um, the more money the happier I'd be. The reality was I was by myself in this job. I was traveling an awful lot by myself and it just got, it just got worse and worse. 
I suppose the internal voice got louder and more negative. I began to berate myself for the decisions I had taken. Um, I resented my athletic career because it put me in a situation I was in. Um, and I stopped exercising. Like I, I, I initially I did nothing. I did nothing. Then I went back and played a bit of GAA, but like initially I did nothing. Um, I I stopped eating well. Like. I used to binge eat. I can tell you some epic stories of just absolutely doing the dog on it, you know. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. And that became the crutch. And, like, the reality was that I didn't know it at the time, but, like, my mental health was just spiraling out of control. Um, I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk to people because everyone was like, oh, what are you doing now? You know, what are you up to? Like, And I always felt that I had to be give them this big elaborate story of like, well, I'm going to be as successful, if not more successful. I'm going to do this. It was all like performance, performance, performance. And that just, it just like, just got to me. It just grated on me. It just kind of beat me down. And, um, you know, like I talk about kind of, you know, I couldn't sleep. I'd get into bed at night. I'd be, I'd be wrecked. I'd be so tired. Because like not only physically, but the emotional arguments that used to go on in my head and then you're trying to sleep, couldn't sleep. I broke out in psoriasis, you know, and again, you're trying to be this healthy person, sport person, eat well, and like I'm a mess. So I felt a mess. Um, and that was it. I, like, I packed in the first job. I got a new job because I think, oh, this is going to be it now. This is going to change everything. And I think that was the hardest part. I was always searching. I was always searching for something that was going to fix everything. You know, maybe it's going back playing a bit of GAA. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a new job or, you know, just always looking for that edge. I got fixated on social media, comparing myself with other sports people and thinking, well, they're doing this. Why didn't I think of that? So again, that imposter syndrome came to the fore. And yeah, that was, that was the reality of it. I, uh, you know, I hid behind a mask. Like a lot of people probably didn't know how bad it was because it's very easy to hide. Very easy. Put the mask on. How are you, Dave? Yeah, brilliant. I'm great. Yeah, I'm a great form. But it's when you go home, when you shut that door, the front door of the house, and that's when like the people closest to you really see what's going on. And I just struggled. I just struggled for a number of years, and um, I found it I found it really hard. And that identity piece was something I really found hard to deal with, and what people kind of thought of me. And I, you know, do people just think I'm just a runner? Was that all I was good at? You know, and uh, you begin to believe that a bit yourself because you're telling yourself that. And uh, yeah, it was a tough old time. You know, I'm not going to lie. It was uh, it was very tough for me. It was very tough for the people who uh, are close to me, like my wife, uh, Charlotte at the time. Um, you know, she's trying to fix me. She feels she knows me better than everybody else. But you just push them away, you know. Um, and that's that's the reality of a mental health crisis. You know, I had a huge amount of change in a short space of time that. I didn't talk about it. I didn't debrief. I didn't get help. I just thought, you know what? I'll brush it under the carpet and everything will work out okay. You know, so it was, it was hard. And can you tell us about that day? I think it was a Sunday um, when you decided yeah. to reach out to uh, Richie Sadler, who's, he, he works with RT, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of, of lads would, would recognise him. Um, what's your relationship? Like, would you have had a relationship with Richie? Not really. Like, I, I would have known Richie because we're both from Ballantyre. Uh, we both went to St. Benilda's. He was a couple of years older than me. So I would have obviously had an interest in his career. Um, and uh, to be honest, we probably would have, we would have kind of crossed paths on a, on a few nights out. That was probably more than anything, you know, uh, and particularly at the time where I was struggling. And to be honest, probably unknown to me, 
Richie was going through his own uh, journey as well. And I think, I think what resonated with me was he gave an article or I either heard him speak and I remember kind of thinking, Jesus, yeah, like I, I can relate to that. And the reality was for me, like I used to firefight from Monday to Friday. Saturday was okay. And then Sunday I was like, oh, here we go again. You know, the, the week is coming. Uh, what am I doing? All this kind of internal dialogue, negativity. And it was, it was one Sunday when um, I, I had a panic attack. I had a massive panic attack. And like at the time, I didn't know it was a panic attack. It was almost, I just felt like I was being a child and having a tantrum. Um, but I can remember Charlotte was pregnant. And I remember thinking like, like she, she was actually in tears at the kitchen table, like and me having a big tantrum. And I remember thinking, fuck, like here's my wife who's, who's heavily pregnant. And like, I'm going to become a dad. Like I need help. I need help. That was the catalyst. That was the moment where I was like, this, this cannot go on the way it is. And um, I was like, who can I ring? And, and even prior to this, I had actually gone to, to counsellors before, but I didn't stick at it. I felt I never connected with them. I felt it just, I felt very uncomfortable. I felt I couldn't articulate how I was feeling. I felt almost ashamed that I was, I was moaning about things and giving out about things. And like, you know, I kept saying to them, what, what are you moaning about? Like, look what you have. What are you moaning about? You should shut up and get on with it. And that was, that was almost like what I kept telling myself. Um, but on this particular Sunday, I was like, who can I, who can I ring? Who can I talk to? And Richie came into my head and I said, right, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to text him. So I text him and straight away, come on down for a cup of tea. And I was like, Jesus. Okay. And in fairness, he only lived a couple of minutes from me. So I said, right, I'll go down here. And even when I was driving down, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? How am I, how, like, what am I doing? And then he, um, interestingly, he said, come on, let's go for a walk. And I was like, right, this is different. Um, and he went into Marley Park, somewhere where like I grew up. And that was it. That was the day when he was like, so, you know, how are you doing? Um, and he actually said to me, he goes, you know what? I, I always wondered how you'd cope. I'd always, you know, from knowing you, he, he said, I always wondered how, how, how you'd cope. And it was almost like he gave me the stage then to just open up and just say, take the mask off and just go, oh, do you know what? I'm fucking, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm not good. I'm not good. And he told me his kind of story and, you know, things that he had, he had thought about. And if anything, like, <laughs> if anything, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, geez, this guy was worse than me. But in a way, it made me realize that I wasn't the only person to feel like this and think like this. And, and that's what I'd really say to people who might be struggling. Like, you're not the only one. You'll always feel alone. You'll always feel like you're the only person, but you're not. People have gone through this and are currently going through it. And people have come out to the side. And for me, that was that gave me a bit of confidence. And then through that, he gave me a bit of direction as to like people to maybe go and talk to and uh, again, a good piece of advice he said to me, like, you know, to be honest with you, David, you know, it took me about five people before I connected with someone. And that gave me a bit of confidence to go, well, look, if I go to talk to someone and I don't really connect them, that's all right. That's OK. But go go to somewhere else, you know, go and talk to somebody else. And that then that was it. That was the journey started. And um, I packed in the job and I had no job, but I was happy. Um, and I began to work on myself. I began to go to a counselor every week in 2016. And um, that gave me a lot of understanding. Um, I was able to kind of reflect. I was able to debrief. I was able to kind of build up that resilience and understand what's important to me. And again, going back to even what we talked about 
near the top of this, you know, exercise, you know, getting back and doing something that I enjoy, something that I love and, and not trying to always smash myself and better myself. It's just get out and do something. Um, and then, yeah, like I still go to counseling. I, I still, uh, I still go now. I go probably once a month. Um, I go to the gym, I run, I focus on the, and I work on the physical side. I need to work on the mental side. So I think, you know, it was a huge journey. Um, and I think the greatest strength I have is probably that I showed an element of vulnerability. Um, and I learned so much from that. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, you know, my sport and everything. And now I can happily look back and go, I'm, I feel I'm a lot more content. Um, I feel I have a lot more of a grasp on what's important to me. And um, I think I can tap into that resilience now that, that I've built up as a result of it, you know? So like, it's, it's, it's a huge process and it's, I think my mental health is something I'll, I'll be working on uh, for the rest of my life, but so is my physical health. So I don't think there's any great difference. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I've always said that, like, you know, we all have our physical health and we're so obsessed about it. You know, we're looking at social media and we're buying into that whole phenomenon that's what's going on there. But we also have our mental health and, you know, it's important not to disregard that as well, because that's, if not more important. Um, something as well that I think is very interesting is that you say you did go to counselling but you didn't really find that connection until you spoke to Richie. Um, but do you think the fact that you went for a walk and, you know, you weren't looking at each other side by side? And that, but that's something I, I've, I've um, got people have spoken about before, even with psychic and suicide, it's sharing a, sharing a story side by side. Yeah, like I often get get the question, you know, like how, how do you help? Or how like if you notice someone that might be struggling, how do you approach it? And again, like, you know, human nature, we always try and help people and we want to, you know, try and improve uh, their lives and things like that. But I think simply what can happen is that the environment isn't right. You know, you might you might go to someone and go, come on, let's go for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And you go to a busy cafe, you know, and it could be locally. And, and then you ask them, oh, look, you know, I know you haven't been yourself for a while. Is everything OK? And you're expecting them to open up in a busy environment where there's people in earshot. And people mm. who might know them, um, even in the workplace. So I think for me, the environment was uh, was very, very important. And I felt very uncomfortable when friends and family would say to me, "Come on, we'll, we'll go for a cup of tea," because it's not something that we would do regularly. So this is this is different. We don't do this. And then they're asking me very awkwardly, like, "How's the head?" You know, and it's like, "Look, you don't, you don't have. If you don't, you don't, you don't feel comfortable asking me. Well, I'm not going to feel comfortable uh, responding to you." And I think. Like one of the charities that uh, I love their slogan, it's uh, Men Shed and Men Talk Shoulder to Shoulder. And I think that's that's really, and it was really important for me that, you know, and Richie's not a bad looking fella, you know, there's probably plenty of people that would like to look him in the eyeballs. But um, for me, that shoulder to shoulder was just, it, I just felt a little bit more at ease. And that's simply, I felt a little bit more comfortable. And I think, you know, if you are looking out for someone, do think of the environment like where are you going to ask them how are you going to approach it because you know if it's not right you won't get that response or the brick wall will go up uh, and i think that's very important um just i know look, there's a lot of things we could we could touch on um but something we we kind of spoke about off air is that you really enjoyed your journey of of writing a cookbook and i believe that might be something you might do again or like briefly how did you 
go about doing this? Like, did you know all those recipes or no, was just trial and error? No, no, it was like, so I did Celebrity MasterChef and then straight away it's like, oh, you'll do a cookbook. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> and then I was like, all right, I'll do that. And then they're like, right, we need like a hundred recipes from it. And I'm like, hang on, you need how many? Um, and I was like, right. And I was like, do I have to do all of that? And they're like, well, yeah, you do. And I was like, oh my God. So it took me about three months to just like, I had my own kind of recipes. I had a, a few of these things that, and like, to be honest, they were recipes like that I would have found before from other people, other chefs, but I would have altered them, you know, again, from an athletic background, you know, you know, changing ingredients and stuff like that. And then I had my own stuff. And then I was like, right, I'm going to have to develop like a whole host of other recipes. And that was really hard because like you're writing them up, you're trying them, you're testing them. It takes a lot of time. And I, I often used to think, what, what's this like Nevin McGuire? No, there's no way Nevin McGuire is doing this stuff. And obviously they're at a completely different level. They have, probably have people to do it for them. But it was it was so hard, right? So you get all the recipes done and then they got to be proofed. You know, someone's got to re, like read over them and then come back with questions. Oh God, like is it is it half a carrot or is it one or two carrots? And you're thinking, oh God, Jesus, I, I can't remember. Um, and then you have to like cook the recipes you know, for photography. So you've got to do all of that. So after the first book, I was like, I am never doing another cookbook again. And then lo and behold, two years later, I'll do another cookbook. But this time I wanted it to be a little bit different. I wanted it to kind of reflect, say, the journey that I was on and I went through. So, you know, food, yes, is very important, but so was exercise. So was recovery. So was your mindset. And that's when um, Back on Track came to the fore, where it was that kind of four uh pillars to it you know uh, obviously yes it was a cookbook but you know the previous kind of chapters were very much about how you build exercise and how you you know allow yourself to switch off and tips and tools around that and um yeah like so I, i've done two now i don't know if there's a third one coming i don't know um it's a lot of work uh like maybe there'll be something maybe from a family perspective because that's where i'm at now in, in my life but uh yeah, like respect to anyone that does a book because it's not easy. It's not easy. And it takes, you know, it takes a lot of uh, work, but also, you know, for me, I had to kind of open up a little bit. And even you referenced Richie Sadler there, like Richie wrote a fantastic book. And, um, you know, when I read that, I was like, you know, he had to go to some difficult places in that and and even like to be open and honest. And um, it's it's not easy, but it's as I always said to Charlotte, I was like, well, Charlotte's my wife. I was always like, you know, but it's on the shelf. There it is. It's done. It's something that I really worked hard at, and it's on the shelf, and I can be proud of that. And I think that's nice to have as well. Look, we're we're coming towards the end now, David. I appreciate this. Um, your your brother. Uh, look, I don't know which way I'm going to put this now, but your your brother was the one of the main guys or the main negotiator uh, getting AIG on board with Dublin GA. Is there any truth to the statement that you haven't paid into Co Park since? <laughs> somebody's paying. Somebody's paying. Um, <laughs> might be coming out of my pocket, but somebody's paying. Yeah, look, John's done a great job. He, he, like, you know, I look at my brother and, you know, he's he, he loves his job. Like, he's a GA man and, um, you know, he's he's head of sponsorship and all that with ALG. And, uh, like, that relationship they have with, with, with the Dublin, not only the Dublin footballers, but the Dublin County Board. You know, they sponsor everything, which in a way is unique in GA. But um, he loves it. And, uh, 
it's funny, like, because, you know, he loves it. And then it comes to uh, All-Ireland Final week and he's pulling his hair out because every Tom, Dick and Harry is at him. Tickets, where's Johnny? Johnny's got tickets and they're ringing me. And PJ Foley, who you know, was ringing me <laughs> one year looking for a ticket, you know. Um, but, yeah, like, it, it's great. It's great. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that I think John has done very well is, like, he, he's that's filtered down to support local clubs as well. And you'll see... You'll see AIG getting involved in grassroots uh, football as well, or not football, but GA in general, uh, in and around Dublin. And um, I think as well, like as a model, they've done very well at activating um, players uh, across all the different areas. So like women's football, camogie, hurling, all the rest of it. And I think that's done. It's done great for individuals as well, because let's be honest, GA is an amateur sport, um, and the GA or the players don't necessarily get paid, but. I always think it's important that the players are used and activated and it builds their profile, their brands, and they get reimbursed for that as well. And I think that's fair, you know. So, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully the Dubs will be back in Crow Park soon and uh, I can I can swan in. <laughs> <laughs> flying, is it? Or to get flying, is that, the, is that what you're saying there? Getting a helicopter? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Get the helicopter in, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just a bit. Look, we're 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 nearly finished now. But um, PJ Foley, I, I was chatting him there before, and he was saying that uh, he was the fulcrum. Yeah. He was the fulcrum to your success in the you know couple of years ago with Ballantyre. He used to be popping balls into you. Is there any any truth to that? He was, he was, yeah. He uh, he he played an awful lot with us uh, that year. We were. Uh, we were senior two in Dublin, so very good, good high level of football, and we were senior A championship as well. So we were up against all the big clubs and the big names, and uh, yeah, PJ held his own. He was, he was a, he was a tough, stubborn little fella. And like I say, little fella now, he'll be killing me for that, you know. But he's not blessed with height, but uh, he's um, no good footballer, very good footballer, and um, you know, at times I, I would have played midfield or else. Uh, you know, as a half forward on the wing and uh, PJ would have been behind me as a, as a half back. So I had to bail him out a couple of times with the speed, you know, get back when he was out of position. But uh, no, good fella. We had a great uh, year that year, in fairness. We done well. And, um, you know, I suppose coming from an individual sport, it was nice to kind of go back into something a little bit different and have, you know, a squad of 20 to 25 lads at training and, you know, that kind of camaraderie. And, you know, even been on the pitch when, you know, tough matches that, you know, people your teammates motivate you and you want to do it for them and that's a nice kind of environment to be in it is definitely something that i do look back uh, at those years with, with fondness so i enjoyed it a lot I, I broke my nose actually flipping before like i got my worst injuries playing gaa i broke a nose and, and tore a peck of all sorts so you know i had to go under the knife once in my life related to sport and career and that wasn't on the athletics track that was on the gaa pitch so Goes to show, hard men, hard men. <laughs> uh, do you think? Look, unfortunately, you were forced to retire in, or you forced to hang up the boots for a while. Uh, the spike, sorry, in you know 2013. But the fact you were given another opportunity, um, or you made it another opportunity to to finish your career on your, you know, the way you wanted to. Do you think you're much happier then that you're able to close that chapter in your life? Yeah, definitely. Like I struggled with, uh, I struggled with retirement because it wasn't on my terms. You know, I, it was injuries and all the rest of it. And then I began to kind of resent athletics and for you know because it put me in the position I was in, and that wasn't fair. And that kind of like beat me up. Like I, 
that that annoyed me for a number of years and I probably pushed it away. And I think, you know, when I started going to counseling and talking about the journey and beginning to understand, you know, what, what was important or what is important, that's when I realized, you know, athletics has been fantastic for me. It's, it's opened up so many doors and opportunities. And, you know, it's something I should be very proud of. The fact that I represented my country at the highest level and I won medals and I became an Olympian, that's stuff that like, people dream of and I, I I lived through that and that's when I kind of realized you know what I'm gonna go back running I'm gonna go I'm gonna start by doing something that I love and it started by doing the park run up in Marley Park that's when I, I went up and I started running again and I'll never forget the day that the first day like what was stopping me doing it was ego you know I used to always be worried about what people oh I'll be recognized or people will see me and I, I look I, I tell the story a lot but it's it's something because I think it's important because we all have a start line out there. We all have something that we want to do for ourselves, but you know what? We stand in our own way. And one Saturday I was like, no negotiation, David, get your arse up to Marley Park and you're going to run a 5k. And I went up and the first fella in the field obviously recognized me. And he was like, ah, Gillick, great to see you. You should win this. And I remember thinking, it's a park run. It's a park run. Oh no. Oh, now people are going to be looking at me. And then they gave me a big, like, oh, great to see a, a local Olympian, David Gillick, on the start line. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I took off like a lunatic. Uh, you swear I robbed the local shop. I was gone. And then a 2K, a fella passed me. I'm not making this up. A fella passed me pushing a buggy. Never forget it. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and I knew what he was thinking. I wasn't fit. I'd never ran a 5K before in my life. And... Um, but I finished it and I felt, I felt great. I was like, geez, I actually feel good. It's Saturday morning. I'm out in the open. I'm in the park. I've done a bit of exercise. This is good. And that became my go-to. And at this point, I uh, was going through counseling. It was 2016. And after a couple of weeks of that, I said, you know, maybe I'll go down to my local track, which was down in Tala. I went down. I jumped in with a couple of junior athletes on a Tuesday or Thursday, park run Saturday, my weekend structure. I enjoyed it. After a couple of weeks and months, I said, you know, I'm going to race. Maybe I'll race. Maybe I'll go back and I'll say goodbye to the sport on my terms. And then the doubts came in. Can you run a 400? What happens if the body breaks down? I haven't ran in a number of years. So I found a little race over in Italy. And I pleaded to get into it. I emailed her and she said, uh, no, sorry, we don't have any lanes available. And in the email, I said, I was David Gillick and I ran this and I won this. And she said, no. I went back to her and I said, look, I had a few injury problems. And again, not making this up, Italian lady, she said, did you win Celebrity MasterChef Ireland? And I said, I did. And she goes, no problem. On your come. You'll have a lane. And I was like, this is crazy. Jeez. Ended up going over to Italy. And I ran, um, I was in the B race. I wasn't even in the A race. of this tiny little meat, tiny meat that nobody really ever heard of. And I came last, right? I was beaten by flipping teenagers you know and around 48 seconds a time I ran as a junior athlete and it was the best race I've ever ran because I did it for me I did it for the right reasons I, I wanted to go back and say goodbye to the sport uh, on my terms and uh, challenge myself in a way and get rid of those skeletons you know um, and I did and I went on that season I continued to race I made the team for the European Championships and um, we just missed out on Rio. Actually, we were fifth in the Europeans and it was great. It was brilliant. And uh, I think, to be fair, like, never mind not making the second Olympics, but 
to go back and put yourself on a start line to do something that you know is right, something that you want to do for yourself, something that you know you need to do, but yet you can talk yourself out of it, you can doubt yourself, and you can give yourself every reason and every excuse not to do it. I'm proud that I did. I'm proud that I got onto that start line and I got around that track and it gave me such a lift. And in a way, you know, I'm at peace now with my career. I'm at peace with my with my sport. Yes, there's days where I think about the races that got away, but overall, I had a great career. I'm delighted. You know, if someone had said that to me as an 18-year-old, I would have flipped and bit their hand off. So, you know, I can now look back uh, with fondness, with, with, with uh, gratitude and... Um, the sport's been very good to me, and uh, I think it's 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 a nice place to be in. Good, very good. Look, well, lastly, uh, what would be two non-negotiables for you on a, on a daily basis? Two non-negotiables. That's a great one. Um, I a bit of self-care. I think whatever that is, whether it's a piece of exercise, whether it's you know putting on a bit of music, always have a bit of self-care and. I think the other one would be um, be aware of how you talk to yourself. You know, I think there's on a daily basis, just be aware of how you talk to yourself. Uh, and I think if you can kind of, for me anyway, if I can hang on to those two, um, I think it's important. Perfect. Look, on, on that note, David, I'll, I'll wrap it up there because I took a huge amount of time uh, from you, and which I, I appreciate. And look, best look with everything going forward. And thanks very much for, for coming on Inside View Podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on and I wish you all the best. I enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with David. Very interesting guy, very down to earth and I think there's a lot to be taken from it. Um, that is all from us on this week's podcast. Please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in any way possible. You can find us on, you'll find us on social media. So it's Instagram um, at underscore on the ball team building over on Facebook on the ball team building over on LinkedIn on the ball team building over on Twitter. It's at we are on the ball two. There's a digit two. You'll find us on TikTok on the ball team building. And alternatively, you can also email us info on the ball team building.com. That is all from us on this week's podcast. Please do tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on it fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.